And it's in your name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Each week we get to see people that we haven't seen in so long, and we're very thankful for that. Um, you know, what the problem is, Dr. Deans is out front, and he's a doctor, so I can't really hug you in front of the doctor. So <clears throat> at some point, he'll give me permission, uh, or we'll just distract him, have him look at a bird or something, then I'll give you a hug. But we love you guys, and we're thankful for those who are able to come back as more and, po- more, and more people get vaccinated. <clears throat> um, today's sermon, just so you know, <clears throat> uh, this is going to be one I need you to really, really pay attention Don't be distracted. Don't let your mind wander. This is an incredibly crucial concept for you. It really is, in fact, a couple of weeks early, a Good Friday message. I've titled this uh, message in our series on the Gospel of Mark, Gethsemane Jesus. So in the way of introduction, let me just ask you a couple questions. Do you know the difference between knowing someone and just knowing about someone. Like, for example, we know a lot about celebrities, but we don't really know the celebrities, even though we know a lot about them. And frankly, these celebrities don't know you or know about you. (laughs) And why is that? Because we're not in their inner circle. We know what they want us to know. They reveal through their agents or through their uh, places where they release information. We know what they want us to know, except on rare, embarrassing occasions when something gets out they didn't want to get out, and then the secret is known. But there's a big difference between knowing someone and knowing about someone. And what about Jesus? Do you know about Jesus? Maybe some of you even in your own opinion, know a lot about Jesus? Or do you know Jesus? And does he know you? I think the difference is when we know a lot about Jesus or what Jesus did for us, Most of us are good on that level, right? We know that he died and he resurrected and he gave us life and he's our savior. We know that part about Jesus and we like that Jesus. But most of us, if you're honest and sincere with me, most of us really struggle with knowing, really knowing Jesus. That's a hard struggle for us. I believe it's because knowing Jesus, not about Jesus, knowing about Jesus is fun, Knowing Jesus isn't fun. Most Christians, I believe, are very content with knowing a lot about Jesus. Knowing what he did for us or what he does for us currently is the good thing. Most of us are good right there. But sadly... Some aren't even interested in knowing really who Jesus is. Many want to know just enough, just enough about Jesus to qualify as a Christ follower. Really knowing Jesus comes with perhaps a cost we're not willing to pay. Sometimes what we do when it comes to knowing Jesus, and we're very good at this, especially as American Christians, we're very good at playing around the edges. 
Now, sometimes we might really try to get to know Jesus on Good Friday, but that's just once a year. So when you come to the point that you really want to say, you know what, I'm tired of just knowing a lot about Jesus. I want to really actually know Jesus. What do you do? Where do you go? And that's the question we're going to answer for you today. Our passage is a little bit longer. It's 10 verses. Mark 14. 32 to 42. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And Jesus said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, which is Hebrew for daddy. He says, Daddy, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words, which were, Daddy, please let this cup pass from me, but nevertheless, your will, but not mine. In verse 40, and again, he came and found them sleeping. This is the second time. For their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. It's a very dark passage. I want you to understand some of the historical aspects. I've called this section the history when we learn about man and what's going on in the times. As I've called it in the garden. I want you to see these guys had garden access. Let me explain to you what I mean. Remember, it's still Passover until sunset the next day with the whole feast week to follow. So Jerusalem is still teeming with lots of people. And on their way back to Bethany, and if you remember, if you've been with me in this journey through Mark, Bethany is where they were staying during this holy week, if you will. They were staying just outside of Jerusalem, probably in Simon the leper's house. We're not certain. It could have been Joseph of Arimathea's house. We're not certain, but it was somebody that had a big house with a little bit of money. And Bethany is where they're staying, and they've left Jerusalem. They were in that upper room for the last... Passover together in the Lord's table, and they're coming out of Jerusalem. It's late at night, probably one o'clock in the morning. The place is crowded. So they were probably given access to this garden. Now, the reason they were in Gethsemane in this garden, it was either a shortcut, a direct route to Bethany, to the house they'd been staying, or perhaps it was a backup place to stay in case it was too late. They didn't want to disturb anybody or it was too long of a walk, and they needed to stay somewhere else for that night. This would have been Gethsemane. This is fascinating. It is probably a privately owned garden. There was no public land right outside of Jerusalem. And this is prime real estate. You understand that? It'd be like right on Siesta Key type stuff. All right, really expensive right on the water. But this is right next to Jerusalem. And so this garden in Gethsemane was owned by somebody very wealthy. A rich follower of Jesus. Fun speculation here. Some of you like it when I speculate. My wife doesn't like it as much, but for those of you that do, the owner may have been, I've seen some stuff, it may have been Joseph of Arimathea. He's the same rich man who provided Jesus his tomb. 
if you remember correctly. He may, by the way, also have been the owner of that big room they just celebrated the last Lord's table in. It's prime, privately owned gardens like these, and they wouldn't just be a bunch of plants. They'd have some sort of accommodations, whether it was like a gazebo or a small house or a shelter, some place you could stop and rest, maybe even spend the night if you needed to. If it was a larger garden, it would have several of these types of places all through it. And it makes sense, right, since Judas, who has already left to betray Jesus, knows where the house is where Jesus is staying, it's quite possible that Jesus is doing a diversion into the garden so he's not arrested on Judas's timeline but on his own, if that makes sense. He wants some personal time with his disciples and with his Lord before he is betrayed. And I want you to see here, there's an opportunity that takes place for the disciples, right? <clears throat> they all enter the garden. <clears throat> Excuse me. Jesus makes eight of the disciples. Remember, there's only 11 now. Judas is gone, and he's getting ready to betray Jesus. There's eight of the disciples. He says, wait just inside the garden here. <clears throat> and he takes Peter and James and John, that inner circle, with him just a little bit further. You know, I often wonder what those eight were thinking. I mean, they've seen this before, right? When Jesus took Peter, James, and John up the mountain for the transfiguration, that whole thing that we preached on. And now he's doing it again with these three. In the darkest hour of his life, Jesus turns to the only other humans on earth who might be capable of offering some sort of comfort or support for him, Peter, James, and John. These are the three that Jesus has had his closest connection with throughout his public ministry. He has invested more time with them than anyone else. These three, for whatever reason, are incredibly special to Jesus. They're the core. They're the backbone of what will become the new church that we are now a part of. You know, I can't even begin to comprehend what it felt like for them to know that they were special. They probably didn't really understand just how much it meant until after the resurrection. If that's kind of like us, I guess, a little bit, right? But as close as they were, they really didn't know who Jesus was until three days later. More on that later, but for now, it's just important to understand what these three men meant for Jesus. So that's the historical section. I want to talk about the spiritual. What about God? What is he doing? Why and how does he do it? I've entitled this section, Man of Sorrows. I want you to see what we see here. For the very first time in Jesus' public ministry, we see a vulnerable Messiah. He is displaying an aspect of his humanity no one has ever seen ever up to this point. He's very emotional. He's very vulnerable. The only other time we see this that we know of is when Jesus was by himself and he was hungry and isolated in the desert for 40 days and Satan was trying to tempt him. <clears throat> and he tells Peter, James, and John that he is exceedingly sorrowful, and it's just a fascinating word. The Greek word for exceedingly sorrow, it's one word. It's this, paralipos. Here's what it means. Here's what the word that Jesus used actually means. It means enveloped, drowning with grief, related to the thoughts of death, or enveloped with grief so great that it could cause death. So no matter what we know is this. The feeling is, I'm about to die or I'm so worried it might kill me. 
Even here, though, in his darkest moment, with the specific word that Jesus picks, he's still teaching. He's letting them know the hour's come. I'm going to die. I know you've been in denial about it, but it's going to happen. But they are, at this point, and this, this is what's so heartbreaking. These men who Jesus knows better than anyone, they're incapable of empathy. It's not because they're bad men or because they don't care or don't love Jesus. It's just that they know a lot about him. Even now, they still don't know him. They've been with Jesus every day for three years, but they still really don't know Jesus, and they can't relate to what he's feeling or why, because they still don't believe he's going to die. I mean, first, there are some reasons why they aren't the Son of God. They don't know Jesus because they aren't him. They still don't believe Jesus will die. And third, they have no idea what's about to happen to them, even though Jesus has warned them. They probably looked at Jesus and each other when Jesus said, I am exceedingly sorrowful, sorrowful unto death. They probably looked at Jesus and each other a little bit perplexed. Our miracle-working rabbi who has raised the dead and fed thousands and taught with authority from heaven, he's telling us he is filled with sorrow of death. I mean, what are you supposed to say if you're Peter, James, and John to Jesus at this point, right? Oh, Jesus, it's going to be okay. <laughs> nah, you're not going to die. Nobody has ever seen Jesus like this. This can't possibly be something they could comprehend what he's feeling. Nobody could have. Yet these three men are given this most precious, and this... These three men at this point are the most honored three human beings in human history. It's the most precious invitation ever to sit with, pray with, and comfort Messiah in his darkest hour. But they don't. They sleep. Why? Maybe seeing Jesus like this was just a little bit too unnerving. I mean, let's be honest. Desperate people, when we're around them, they make us awkward, don't they? Don't pretend like they don't. I mean, yes, we can have compassion or sympathy, but for the most part, especially if we don't know a lot about them, we kind of avoid desperate people. Sometimes we can't help it. We're thrust into it, and we've got to address it. But we... I mean, if you had to wake up one morning and say, you know what, I'd like to fill my day with just people absolutely desperate, that would be fun. <laughs> so that's where we are. And then we see this thing about Jesus and this cup. He wants a different cup. So I'm just going to tell you now, when I was writing this section this week, I'm not sure I could explain how it made me feel. There were emotions Guilt, fear, relief, comfort. It was like all rushing through cycling. I was embarrassed by something, which is this. And it hit me like around Wednesday. I know a lot about Jesus. But I didn't know him as good as I thought. But this week, for the first time in a while, perhaps ever, 
I got to really know just a bit more about my Savior. And it had a profound impact on me. This is it right here. He knows he is about to become, and listen carefully, just don't let anything distract you for the next few minutes. He is about to become the object of Daddy's cup of wrath, Abba, Father's cup of wrath. It will start with just a trickle, a sip right here. And then over the next few hours, it will become a cascading waterfall of judgment, a full cup poured out, completely emptied on the cross. Have you ever seen someone so full of sorrow that they stumble, they can't walk, and then they fall down in tears? Have you ever seen that? Maybe a video, or maybe you've experienced it yourself. I know I have. <clears throat> Where they are stumbling aimlessly and then fall to the ground in pain. That's what Jesus does here when it says he goes a little further and fell to the ground. He stumbles further, falling in tears, but Peter, James, and John don't go. They're staying behind. They don't watch. They fall asleep. And now Jesus is completely isolated. He's on the ground, and here's what he cries out. Abba, Daddy, the endearing Hebrew term. He's crying out to Daddy, but Daddy won't hear him. Do you hear what I just said? His prayers are going unanswered, unheard. And Jesus' grief, listen, I want to make sure you understand something. Jesus' grief is not about dying. Death is nothing to Jesus. He already knows he has power over the grave. He resurrected Lazarus, remember? He's already predicted to them that he would conquer the grave. He says, listen, I'm going to go, but when I come back, I'm going to restore you after you scatter. That's what we preached on last week. The agony that he's feeling is the fact that he's going to become everything Abba, Daddy, Father, hates and abhors. Everything that must be judged and cleansed. It's about the horrifying cup of wrath. He's about to take, at this moment, right here, the first sip of that cup in his prayer. Are you ready? I'm going to give you some deep theology. It is right here, at this moment, in the garden, on the ground, when he prays to Abba, Father, Daddy, and his prayer is not heard. It is that moment where Jesus became sin. That is the moment he became hated. Not just by men, but by God. That moment right there, he is now sin. Tears from other gospels, you know, sweating blood. It is a full-on grief and sorrow attack. A level of despair no human could ever endure. Jesus is as far removed from his state of glory and power as he has ever been. He is, in fact, at this point, right here, right now, as he becomes our sin, right there, he is, in fact, the loneliest person in human history. I think of prophecies in the Old Testament. I looked around, 
and no one was there. That's him right here, Gethsemane Jesus. It's so horrifying. Jesus prays for some other way. Just give me some other cup, please. I don't want to become everything you abhor and hate, Daddy. But he's still willing to pay the price. The Father doesn't hear his prayers. He is cut off, as Isaiah says. And I want you to see this rejected invitation. There is Jesus is praying on the ground for a while, long enough for Peter, James, and John to become uninterested. They're not even watching this incredible scene before them. They decide to catch a few Z's because it's late. You know, it's like 1 a.m. They've had that long Passover dinner. It's been a long day. After all, it's extremely late. They're exhausted. Jesus goes back to get some consolation from them, and he finds them sleeping. You know what the saddest part about this whole thing is? Jesus is hurting. He's devastated. He's invited them, these three, the closest people in his life, he's invited them to comfort him. Messiah is asking humans for comfort. Through the moment that he's enduring, this moment where he passes from Jesus to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin. This is the moment it happens and he's looking, he's hungry for some sort of companionship. But nobody's interested. He has given them a precious invitation into the deepest crevasse of who he is. But they are not here for that. How? How could their rest be more important than what Jesus has just offered? I'm giving you a chance to know me like no one in the world will ever know me. Right here, right now. And instead, they choose sleep. He wakes them up. You couldn't pray with me, Peter, for just an hour? And when he addresses Peter, it's all of them. You understand, Peter, James, and John. Peter, you have no idea what's about to not hit not only you, or not only me, but you. You really ought to be praying. If I were you, I'd be praying right now for the temptation that's about to overwhelm you, that the thing you're about to experience, the one I just warned you about a few minutes ago right before we entered the garden, that you would all scatter. He goes back to his spot of grief, loneliness, and sorrow, and despair, and rejection, and he prays the same thing again. He returns a second time. They're sleeping again. He's still the loneliest man in human history. He wakes them up. Guys, you better pray. Things are going to get really bad in about 20 minutes. You better wake up. He goes back and prays some more. The loneliest man in human history comes back. They're sleeping again. You still can't pray? You want your rest more than you want to be with me at this time when I need you the most? And Jesus says, enough. I'm done with this. It's time. Let's go meet my betrayer. How are they so callous? 
Imagine the despair, the heartbreak. Those who he loved the most would rather get their rest than share his suffering. He's cut off from the Father, rejected by his closest friends. Family is nowhere to be seen. And on top of all that, he has become the target of everything God hates. This moment right here, not on the cross, it's right here. I mean, who wants to be associated with that? (laughs) Okay. The personal section. I hope you're ready. I want to talk about knowing Jesus. This was the social media campaign. I was really excited this week. Mark the Evangelist retweeted my social, like, sermon, sermon preview. Isn't that great? It's so true. To this day, we regret falling asleep when Gethsemane Jesus wanted us to pray with him. And this was my tweet. We are so motivated to know Easter Jesus. But why do we consistently ignore Gethsemane Jesus? I'm going to talk about Easter Jesus for you for just a minute. The disciples had this beautiful opportunity to know their Jesus on a level, incredibly intimate level, but they couldn't see it for what the jewel it was. They were too tired. (laughs) It'd been a long day. They were stressed. They needed their rest. They needed their comfort. They wanted that over connecting with Jesus in his suffering. You know, they had no problem, these disciples, putting forth effort and sacrifice for miracle Jesus. They had no problem putting in the time to follow and walk all over God's creation with teaching Jesus. They had no problem being excited about and saying, yeah, that's my rabbi when he was raising the dead Jesus. How could they know all of that, experience all that, and then neglect Gethsemane Jesus? Well, let me tell you something. We all do it. Constantly. All the time. With the exception, maybe, of one day a year on Good Friday. Maybe. Look, I know we worship Jesus. We sing songs about Jesus. We love Jesus. But do we really know him? We don't know too much about him as a man. We just know him as our Savior. We're more interested in and attracted to the same Jesus the disciples were. We want to know about what Jesus does for us, how he makes us feel. We love Easter Jesus, don't we, for that reason? The Jesus who hears our prayers and answers them, the Jesus who can heal us, the Jesus who can feed us, the Jesus who can provide for us, the Jesus that gives us incredible fellowship with other believers, the Jesus who saves us, the Jesus who transforms us. That's the Jesus we want to know, right? He's not the pitiful, desperate Jesus. He's our champion Jesus. He's our victorious redeemer who satisfies our soul, Jesus. He is Easter Jesus. Church, we can't connect with Jesus like we do with our friends and family over a nice meal or at holidays or Disney World. Jesus tried those things with those disciples, did he not? All they did throughout that time was learn more about Jesus, but they didn't really learn to know Jesus. Let me tell you something. If Easter Jesus is the only Jesus you spend time with, you don't know anything about Jesus. You don't know him at all. 
I'm not saying you might not be a Christian. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is you don't really know your Savior very well. Gethsemane, Jesus. This is the one to know. Look at these passages from Isaiah. Chapter 53, the second part of verse 2. Look what Isaiah says about Jesus. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. There was nothing about Jesus that anyone wanted a part of. Didn't that sound like Gethsemane Jesus right there? Look at chapter 53, verse 3, the first half. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows familiar with grief. Even his own disciples rejected him. See, if you really truly want to know Jesus, Gethsemane Jesus is the one to spend time with. Our Savior at his most vulnerable point. Gethsemane Jesus is where we are humbled. It's where we are broken. Gethsemane Jesus is the one with the power of transformation. Where we learn to genuinely love our Lord. We don't spend much time with Gethsemane Jesus compared to Easter Jesus. (laughs) Why is that? Well, because let's be honest, the way I just described it, Gethsemane Jesus is depressing. He's pathetic. He's pitiful. He's lonely. He's desperate. He's rejected. And the scripture says in Isaiah, he's unattractive. He's a man of sorrows. He's hated. That's why we like Easter Jesus more. But I'm going to give you a concept today that I really hope you can take with you. I want to call it the fellowship of his sufferings. You want Gethsemane Jesus today? Paul gives us incredible insight and instructions. And look at the depth of what Paul is willing to do to know Jesus. Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, 11. This is powerful. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection, not on Easter Sunday, but that I, and, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him where? In his death. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul says, when I want to learn more about resurrection power, when I want to really not just know about Jesus, but I want to know Jesus, I don't go to Easter Sunday in the, in the tomb that's empty. I go to the garden. Paul's words demonstrate how time with Gethsemane Jesus transformed his values through his knowledge of learning about Jesus' suffering. Do you really want to know Jesus, Christian? Truly fellowship with your Lord? It must start with extremely uncomfortable time with Gethsemane Jesus. We must meet Jesus there often in the garden as often as the Spirit invites us at His most vulnerable suffering state. It is, in fact, the same invitation Jesus gave Peter, James, and John. He's invited us to know Him in His sufferings as well. If you're interested, by the way. Maybe you're not. What things in your life at this point are more appealing to you than this precious imitation. Maybe it's your rest. That was number one for the disciples. And frankly, I think it's probably number one for most of us American Christians. Life is stressful. 
We get tired. We need rest. Maybe it's your job that you like more than this precious invitation to know Gethsemane Jesus. Maybe it's your addiction you love more than Gethsemane Jesus. Maybe it's your hobbies. Maybe it's your politicians. Sometimes, you know what, this is, sometimes we can't even get ourselves motivated to meet Easter Jesus once a week on Sunday mornings because we want our rest. Never mind Gethsemane, Jesus. Church, we can't just wait for Good Friday once a year anymore to meet Jesus here in the garden. How about we do it every Friday? It's so important. And why is that? Because Gethsemane Jesus gives us a precious gift of brokenness before God because it is there that we realize that we are the reason he's in the garden in the first place. We put him there. Gethsemane Jesus teaches you what Jesus had to do so that we could even have the chance to meet Easter Jesus. You can't meet Easter Jesus without Gethsemane Jesus He started that moment in the garden. At that point, he took his first sip of the cup he wanted God to take from him. The cup meant for us. That was his first swallow of wrath. Gethsemane Jesus, the man of sorrows, is the Jesus who humbles you, moves you, inspires you, teaches you to serve others. How about we just take a few moments as a church and meet him here right now? I'm going to ask Megan to come up. She's going to join me for this last part. I mean, because after all, church, that sip of that cup he took, that was supposed to be your cup. He drank it for you. And he took his first swallow right in the garden. Heavenly Father, Jesus, we have time to be busy later. We'll take our rest later. But this moment today, right now, we want to get to know you in the fellowship of your sufferings. can imagine if we were there in the garden watching you take that first sip of that cup meant for us knowing what was going to come next the beating the crown of thorns despised and rejected people spitting on you mocking you all the things we're going to be learning about the next few weeks in this series. I think of that moment right there in the garden, that moment you became my sin, our sin. Gethsemane, Jesus, thank you. And please forgive us for rejecting this precious invitation so often that we do. The invitation to meet you at the moment you became our sin.
Jesus. The disciples didn't know then. Uh, they were probably just tired. But we know now why we don't spend time with you, with Gethsemane Jesus. It's really difficult sometimes for us to wrap our minds around uh, just how sinful we are. All of the times, uh, <laughs> all of the times that we added just a drop to that cup. Hmm. And we, we stand here today knowing that we've been redeemed and we've been forgiven, but yet we know that we're going to leave this place in just a few moments and we're going to add one more drop to the cup. Hmm. And so it's really difficult for us knowing uh, or having some sort of an idea or concept of what you went through. We think we know uh, just how bad it was. We have no idea what it was like for you to have a cup of all sin for all of time fall onto you. And it's hard for us to sit with you in the garden because we added to it and we continue to add to it uh, drop by drop by drop by drop with every, every sin. The stuff that we think is a sin, we know the stuff that we do is bad, but yet all of the other stuff that we do too, the times that we don't love other people in your name, the times that we don't honor our father and mother, the times that we don't cleave to our spouse, the time that we aren't good parents, the time that we are dishonest. I mean, all of these things that we do drop, drop, drop in the cup. And we're grateful that we get to stand here today. We know, we sang it earlier, when we see you face to face when we're ransomed with others in glory. But it can't just be about that. So no, you don't want us, uh, we know that our sins have been forgiven, but yet we're going to sin again. Uh, you don't want us to live in sin east to west. However, help in our hearts, help change our hearts Change our thoughts. Change our heart. The heart's the problem. We're going to keep adding drops, but help us to maybe add one less. Jesus, I'm going to ask that you, in the hearts of those that are here, those that are watching, and maybe those that will watch the replays later of this sermon, I'm going to ask that you give us over the next few weeks as we come into Easter daily invitations to see Gethsemane, Jesus. Constantly remind us that we should watch and pray. Don't let us put rest or jobs or even family in front of those moments with Gethsemane, Jesus. Because it will make Easter, Jesus, all the more satisfying. Invite us often and give us the willingness to avoid the temptation that would keep us from being with you in the fellowship of your sufferings. In Jesus' name, amen.
I'm going to ask you to go this week. Be mindful of Gethsemane, Jesus. And hear the invitations often. And heed them as quickly as you can. Have a great week. We love you.